Welcome, listeners. Have a seat over here by the fire. This is an episode by episode watch along podcast for the new Wheel of Time TV show. Unless you're listening some point after the inevitable reboot, in which case this is a podcast about the old Wheel of Time TV show. Never mind that dark future, and never mind the Trollocs, here's the podcast. Listeners, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I am Sarah, she and they pronouns, and one of the most formative relationships of my entire life that has ever happened happened because he reminded me of our boy Matt Cawthon, and it all just kind of went from there. So that's my L for this week. How about you guys? Uh, I'm Tom, he, him pronouns, and I am without L's. <laughs> I'm Nina, she, they pronouns, and I realized as I was watching this episode that I was completely wrong in last week's recap about who was in that cage cart <laughs> that the Aes Sedai have. Hmm. I thought it was the guy from the first episode that they catch. I didn't realize that it was someone oh, yeah. else. I, the first time I watched it, I also thought that, so you're not alone. <laughs> um, and I'm Max. See, I didn't think that. Because I've watched too many of the promotional material for this show. Hi, Max. Who are you? Hi, I'm Max. I use he, him pronouns. And my Wheel of Time L is that, much like Nynaeve, I too have memorized and phonetically spoken phrases from a different language without knowing what they mean. Go on. Oh, uh, it's namely stuff from anime. (laughs) Rip. Rip. I used to have Domon's entire Shining Finger speech memorized from G Gundam, but since I stopped recording about that show, I forgot that, thankfully. <laughs> Congratulations. My my one is probably Doviandi Sotovias again, which is a Wheel of Time one, so let's fucking go. Oh, is that what that means? Does that mean let's fucking go in the old tongue? <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, to be honest, that is what it gets used to mean in the books, so Doviandi Sotovias again, give us a recap. In the Aes Sedai camp, a green, Karini, heals Moraine's Trolloc-poisoned wound, then takes her to see the false dragon. The rumors Perrin heard of war in the south and Gaelden were true. A man who can channel the source, Loghain, proclaiming himself the dragon reborn, gathered an army and set out to bind the world the last dragon broke. But the Aes Sedai captured him. Although the red, Leandrin, wants to gentle him and be done, they are taking him to the White Tower, to the leader of the Aes Sedai, the Emerlin seat, for trial. His channeling is so strong, only the most powerful Aes Sedai among them can keep him shielded, and even they must work in pairs. The Tuatha'an break camp and invite Egwene and Perrin to join them for as long as they wish. They're headed for Tarvalon. On the road, Perrin asks how they defend themselves and learns that the travelers follow the way of the leaf. They abjure violence. None among them carry weapons, and if attacked, they try to run. If they cannot run, they endure, firm in the belief that the leaf falls in its time, nourishing the tree that someday will grow the leaf again. After a night and a day of hard riding, Matt, Rand, and Tom find a farmstead shortly before nightfall. Planning to sneak into the barn to rest and be gone before daylight, they instead find themselves at the business end of a farmer's bow. Rand decides to be honest with the man about their intentions, 
and the farmer and his wife agree to let them sleep in the barn if they muck out the stables first. In the middle of mucking out stables, Matt is ill. He steps outside, and when he throws up, what comes out of him looks like the spreading darkness from Shadar Logoth. Inside, Tom pulls Rand aside and explains his growing suspicion that Matt can channel. Tom has seen the signs before in his own nephew, the irritability and moodiness, sickness with no apparent cause, animals skittish around him, the power and the madness taking hold. All the result of a curse by the Dark One, a curse that poisoned the Source itself. If the Aes Sedai find out, they will gentle him and cut him off from the Source. It seems a kindness leaving them alive, but the gentled always fade away. Tom promises to stay with them and protect them as long as he can. Later, Rand tries to reassure Matt and prod him to confide, but Matt is silent or asleep and Rand blows out the lantern. After confronting Loghain, Moraine has a crisis of confidence. Could she be wrong about the identity of the Dragon Reborn? And how could she have lost the four Taviran? Lan reassures her, but the uncertainty weighs heavy on them both. Rand dreams. In a gray shadow world, Perrin hammers a stake into a body, who we cannot see. Matt stares blankly ahead as he walks, his hands covered in blood. And Egwene calls out, before the figure with glowing eyes grabs hold of her with a roar. It's Tom who shakes him awake. Matt is gone, and the horses are restless. They go to the farmhouse and find the farmer and all his family dead, bodies littering the house and blood pooling beneath them. Matt stands, staring at a loft, mouth hanging open, dagger from Shadar Logoth in his hand. The dagger points into the dark shadows above, and he says, I see you before the Fade screams and attacks. Daggers flying, Tom fends off the Fade, yelling for Rand and Matt to run. They mount their horses and ride off, leaving carnage behind them. An alarm echoes through the Aes Sedai camp. The remnants of Loghain's army have found them. With a burst of energy, Loghain breaks the shield around him, sending Leandrin and Karini flying into the stone walls. The others in camp array themselves against the oncoming attack. Aes Sedai and warders ready to prevent the prisoners' escape. Alana turns a rain of arrows back toward the enemy. Air whips round and earth explodes upwards in great gouts. Warders fight like whirlwinds. Nynaeve is almost paralyzed, overwhelmed by the chaos and violence of battle. With a shout, Alana sends them all to the cave. She will hold the line herself. Moraine arrives first just as Loghain finishes melting the cage they locked him in. She does not attack, though. She wants to talk. Why should she believe he is the Dragon Reborn? He tells her how he can hear his past lives speak when he channels, that they will teach him to do better than in his past lives. But her question was a distraction while she waited for her sisters to come too. The three of them place shields on him once more, but before the shield is solid, he shoots spears of power at them. Karini protects Moraine and Leandrin, but in doing so, leaves herself vulnerable, and she is killed. Her warder, Stepan, raging with grief, arrives. He strikes at Loghain with his axes, breaking the shielding, and the axes shatter to pieces, bits of metal exploding outward and wounding almost everyone in the room. Lan is hurt worst. His throat is cut, and he is quickly bleeding to death. Desperate to help him, Nynaeve unconsciously touches the source. 
The whole cave fills with white light that washes out everything, and she heals all of them. Loghain is stunned by this display of power, which buys the Aes Sedai time. The rest arrive and link with Leandrin to gentle Loghain once and for all. Damn good episode. Woo! Damn good episode. I Yeah, I think this was kind of the... In the show, which is mostly girl boss moments, this was kind of the most of all. For now. <laughs> For now. <laughs> and, you know, I, I hesitate to call it a girl boss moment because, like, that's a fucking joke that we all do and say when really it was just fucking incredible. <laughs> um, brackets genuine, close brackets. <laughs> so, yeah, this episode was titled the The Dragon Reborn. And that sort of seems to be the kind of focus on it. It sort of seems like the Logan episode, culminating in, I guess, a suggestion that Nynaeve is the Dragon Reborn. I don't know if you guys got that from Yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, that she is the fifth one. Mm-hmm. When Dana is talking about five people in her dreams, she means Rand, Matt, mm-hmm. Perrin, Egwene, and Nynaeve. Mm-hmm. Also, mm-hmm. that Maureen has just said the power of the Dragon Reborn will be like a raging sun. Mm-hmm. And then Loghain sees Nynaeve do this and talks about the raging sun. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, 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 it's pretty explicit. Yeah, I never believed that Loghain was the fifth person that Dana saw in her dream. Like, I mean, the, it, it's pretty obvious that he's a false dragon. What with the whole way he's so like open and bombastic about believing himself to be the dragon, he's certainly mm-hmm. powerful, but. I, I feel like the show is trying to misdirect people on, you know, who the dragon could be. And I think you it's one of the things you wanted to talk about, Sarah, how it's just like mm. anyone could be the dragon. And the show is like trying so hard and like putting in so much work of just like constantly trying to like pass the ball from one kid to another on who it could be. Yeah. You know, last episode or maybe in the even in the second episode, you know, we had Maureen being like, OK, well, Egwene is the strongest. Like, it's probably Egwene. You know, Rand's had his little moments, like, we get, like, kind of Matt moments this episode where you're like, what the fuck is up with him? He can channel. Mm-hmm. And then we sort of finish off with, with Nynaeve here. Um, so, speaking of the Dragon Reborn, do we just kind of want to go through that? Max, what do you, as a non-reader, think about what the Dragon Reborn means? So, what... I like about it is this sort of moral grayness to it because the very first thing you hear about the dragon reborn is that he's like the reincarnation of the dragon, the man who broke the world. And that is treated like it's some terrible, you know, inherently evil power at first, I suppose. Mm. When they're talking with Dana last episode and she says the dragon reborn is like, you know, we get to the dark, one and it'll be good because he'll be able to break the wheel and it's the Aes Sedai who want to kill the dragon and you have this conversation that happens a lot in this episode between different Aes Sedai mostly of them talking about the dragons like okay we got to gentle him we got to take get the power out of him and I think it's um it's either Maureen or Alana who says that you know when the final battle comes like maybe we're supposed to stand with the dragon and if we gentle him uh-oh so it's, I really like that it's not like, 
it, it doesn't seem to be a like remembering your past life as a dragon. It seems to be like this kind of mantle that whoever is reincarnated has to essentially take up, like almost whether they that whether they like it or not. It's mm-hmm. a it's an interesting like subversion of the chosen one trope, wherein, um, mm, I, I think the main thing I'm coming back to is that I just like that it's still not really clear. The show is only telling you as much about the dragon as it needs to at any given moment. Like the line when uh, Loghain is talking to Moraine and he says that he can hear the past lies of all the other dragons, which Moraine seems to be completely discounting him. And she's like, yeah, that's madness. But I, I don't know how much she or the Aes Sedai know about the dragon reborn. And also that got me thinking is like, because what they, I know I'm going on a long tangent here. They mentioned that the, um, I almost called it the Amberlin seat, emo punk. Um, <laughs> whatever. It was like it's like three thousand years old. Is that three thousand years since the world was broken and remade? I think that has been mentioned. Okay, is the dragon constantly reincarnating, or is it this prophecy that they're like at this point in time the dragon will be reincarnated? Because what uh, Logan said got me thinking, and I, this could be me being played like a fiddle by the show of him actually like believing that the past lives of the dragons are speaking to him because Amazon gives the voice a subtitle like the I voice in, that. Yeah. yeah like Elusha if you didn't have subtitles you wouldn't know at all but the fact that that voice has a name is like well it's is it like the avatar where when the mm-hmm. avatar dies whoever the next person who's like born is the avatar and like that's how the dragon reborn works is it like this like cumulative power thing is it like uh one for all. Um. <laughs> so I will say that uh, Rand actually talks to his father. Yes. And asks, how long does it take for someone to be reborn into the world? Mm. And it's it's unknown. Yeah. No one knows. Mm-hmm. The way the travelers, the grandmother of Aram, I forget her name, talk about the way of the leaf and talk about this future that they're trying to create, uh, it sounds as if she assumes... Her daughter has not necessarily been reborn into the mm-hmm. world yet, but will be in some extended future time. Right. I, I have written down another thing that Tam says in that same speech in the first episode. I think like either Rand asks him or he says something about like there is a reason we can't remember our previous lives. Mm-hmm. Um and then coupling that with what Tom says. Uh, this episode about what a glee man is and the the dangers of someone who remembers and knows the past and then also on top of the fact that Tom's introduction song was a song which I was presumably about the Dragon Reborn titled The Man Who Can't Forget so I'm sort of like I'm sensing some just like reoccurring motifs about memory and remembering like perhaps remembering one's past life Um, so I'm wondering if, if that will be a, a thing to come up about who the Dragon Reborn is. And I think it stands to reason that if we're talking about a wheel that turns endlessly and spins lives back into the world, there's no reason to think that there would only be one prior life. Mm-hmm. And of course, when Loghain is uh, hearing the voices, he hears two voices. Yeah. yeah. He, he hears a masculine and a feminine voice. Though I think they only give a name to one of them in the subtitles. Yeah, we, we don't know the name of the, the masculine voice. The other thing that occurs to me as we're talking about it is that Moraine and Loghain could be right. He could be hearing past voices mm-hmm. and going crazy. If I had 
thousands of past lives and suddenly I could remember them all, probably the effects of that would resemble what we call madness. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to go back to Avatar The Last Airbender, the greatest TV show ever made, um, <laughs> the main thing is that you can go and talk with the past avatars. And mm-hmm. that gets me thinking, like, sure, being the greatest channeler who ever lived is one thing, but a power even greater than that is to remember the past and to know what happened in the past. It's it's like going hand in hand with what Tom said about the Gleeman, that like they they know. So that really, I don't know, that, that gets me interested because it's like, yeah, like whenever whoever gets revealed to be the dragon, um, knowing of the past is like far more impressive to me than being able to, you know, shoot a really big fireball. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in that very first scene of the first episode, when we have the other male channeler getting captured, that older man that he is with who disappears when the Red Sisters catch up to him might also be one of these like past yeah. lives that this other guy was seeing. Like, And it's when he references the other guy that Leandrin is like, oh, the madness has already taken him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's like... So far, the depictions of madness, which, to be fair, it's just Logan and this other guy, have been, like, the the madness has been another person and, like, not yourself. And I am kind of deflecting away from talking about memory because I can't talk about it anymore without going into book spoiler territory, so I'm kind of (laughs) going to segue into this because the madness being, like, other than oneself and being reflected as someone else was really interesting to me in the intro scene this episode where... Logan has the people are talking to him they're like whispering in his ear they like completely stereotypical like worm tongue type shit of like you should do this thing and it was very notice- notable to me this episode that Logan ignored them and did his own thing and like yeah. mm-hmm. he had that madness but he was not completely like controlled by it and I really mm-hmm. liked that this is not however the only depiction of madness or something like it in this episode because what happens to Matt uh, towards the end of the episode, really looks a lot like Madness. Mm. He looks... Mm-hmm. Madness. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. He, do- he does yeah. look like out of himself, you know, controlled by something other than, than his own mind. Yeah, like th- there's not another person. It's just goop. It's literally internal in him because it's coming out of him. Yeah. Although Ugh. there's also the dagger, right? Like the dagger... In that last scene when he points at the fade, seems to have a mind of its own. Right, it's almost guiding itself. Yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't feel like he's pointing a dagger. It feels like the dagger lifts his arm up. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a really good like movement, like direction there. And that I see you, like when he's not looking in that direction. Yeah, his eyes are like fully rolled up in his head, like he's not seeing that's the dagger talking. Mm-hmm. I love this thing that happens in some fantasy stories of the two evils that yeah. are arch enemies and fighting each other. Yeah, we call and those so Democrats clearly... and Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> and clearly, uh, whatever evil inhabits Shadar Logoth uh, really hates fades. Yeah, mm. it's like a, it feels like a self-preservation thing. It's like, yeah, I'm evil. I'm born of this entire city going nuts. But also... I don't like that guy. I don't like that guy without eyes. <laughs> yeah, while we're at Matt, this episode really endeared me to Rand in the way that he like treats Matt. You know, visibly his bro is something's up with his bro and like he's just trying to be there. Mm-hmm. 
there's a lot of what Rand does in this episode that you really get to see this much more like intelligent, uh, in tune, intuitive, thoughtful side of Rand. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Where like the very first thing we see of Rand is him basically telling Matt's like, if Tom was smart, he would have killed Dana, even if he's also a dark friend to make it seem like we could trust him. And later on, like when they're all held at bow point by the family, he's like, if I ever wanted to kill you, I wouldn't have said all this stuff. And then when he checks on Matt in bed, like you, it's like, we, I, I like the side of Rand. I like that Rand is like a, a caretaker figure almost. Yeah. Rand and Tom both express pretty clearly in this episode that they are committed to staying with Matt, even if Matt is becoming corrupted by mm-hmm. the one power and like is going to turn into this monster that everyone says men who channel become. In my notes, I have Rand's radical honesty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it very much contrasts with like Tom's sort of approach to things and like Matt's approach. Like you kind of assume that Matt's approach to things would also be to like lie his way through this. Yeah. I mean, they're on stolen horses in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like the fact that Rand kind of like decides to almost sort of like seize control be like no 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 like this is what we're doing like fuck we're being honest now it's time for truth it's truth time it feels like because you know Rand knows tom's been around he knows that tom's met all sorts of people but it feels like when rand is talking down the 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 father of the family with the bow rand is a simple country folk this family is simple country folk like it feels like rand speaking like from his own experiences to know exactly how to placate this family yeah definitely and that's implied in the text when he's like if you really wanted to shoot me you wouldn't be holding the bow that way i a woodsman intimately familiar with bow holding Mm -hmm. know a thing or two about this ah i see a fellow bow guy (laughs) (laughs) a man of culture Yeah, I love the fact that like we turn like the other two like family members are also like holding them at gunpoint. That's really good. And and snuck mm-hmm. up. Like, yeah, and they like they didn't really notice. Like as the father is holding up, he's like, "What do you think, my love?" And like you turn out, and like both the the woman and like their son are like bows drawn, ready to shoot. <gasps> A child. <laughs> Speaking of uh, Rand, I think Tom, you had. A note about Rand being the paranoid one. I wanted. To, what did you mean by that? I mean, at the beginning, when he suggests that Tom might be leading them into a trap, that oh, Tom yeah. just killed the other dark friend in order to uh, gain their trust and is actually their enemy. You know, that's a side of like Rand paranoia. Somebody just hit our doorbell. All right. Um, Para para Rand. Parandoid. Parandnoia. Parandnoia. But this this, uh, Parandnoia is not totally new. (laughs) He had some of this towards Moraine and Lan back when Mm. they were traveling together. But it does feel as though he is is growing to distrust all the people around him. Yeah. Mm. Well, all the outsiders anyway, right? Yeah. It's a healthy suspicion to have when you and your childhood friends are being paraded around, just shuffled across the landscape of the world because one of you is extremely, extremely special. Like, I can't blame him. But, like, even with that amount of paranoia, like, he'll still go along with things that he believes. I guess, like, he can still get out of these situations if he needs to. Yeah, because I guess, like, with what he's seeing or suspecting of Tom is kind of the same situation as with Moraine. It's like they're in the for their fucking up shit creek, whatever. Like Tom or Moraine is the only like paddle they have currently. So even if it's rotten mm-hmm. and about to break, like 
it's still his best option, like, from what he sees to go mm-hmm. with them. Yeah. Um, sort of leads into one of the things that I noticed this episode, and I really like about the show so far, but how they handle exposition and lore and little bits of pieces about the world, because one of the things that they use as a vehicle for explaining the world is how sheltered and clueless these kids are. Yeah. Because it means people have to explain things to them about other cultures, about other places, and really they're explaining to the audience. Yeah. But it feels authentic because <laughs> these kids don't know shit. And, yeah. and, and also, like, like with... Um, Matt and the Aiel, like last episode, it's kind of like there's there's things that they've sort of heard about, so that like they know enough to be able to like ask questions, like they have enough context to be able to like oh like oh I've heard that about men who can channel whatever, and then like the other person will clarify or whatever. Mm-hmm. I I did want to talk about this actually because there's a couple of things like the fades and Trollocs and um men channeling where it's like these are all things that are widely known in the world to be scary to be really really bad like most people have never seen a trollic most people have never seen a fade uh, most people have never seen a man who can channel but they hear stories about them mm. it kind of feels in the show like our two rivers kids don't know about any of these things And so, like, it doesn't feel like they're appropriately scared of the possibility that one of them might be a channeler or that, you know, it doesn't feel like they're appropriately dreadful of of the fades. Like, Mm. I want that feeling like they have been hearing stories since they were in the cradle about how if you misbehave, the fades are going to come get you and carry you away or like stuff like that. Mm. And it doesn't I don't think it's conveying that to me. Yeah, because it's like whenever, like, because at at the end, you know, the the fade like comes in and like Tom is like, "Boys, you gotta fucking get out of here!" Like, and then he starts kicking us, which, um, by the way, fucking absolutely like so this good. old man just tearing <laughs> shit up, you know, incredible stuff. But like, he's just the one who's like pushed it, and they're kind of like, "Um, should shouldn't we like help you?" Like, and he's like, "No, this thing's gonna fucking kill you," and they don't quite seem to understand. I think part of that could kind of be explained away of them being 20 years old. It's like, you're young. You're not like a complete idiot teenager, but you're at that point where you you kind of start to feel like an adult, but you haven't really learned anything about the world. And it's like, you can hear all these stories and then you experience something like this in, in real life. And you're like, oh, well, stories are one thing, you know, when I'm seeing it for myself, it's a whole different thing. I, I they don't none of the kids really come off like that cocky to me, but at the same mm. time, I feel like that's like this an inherent part of being that young, where you 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 have this cockiness and you have this just like you feel like you know I'm the main character of my story type thing. Also, imagine for a minute how you would feel if some person bedraggled in a robe showed up at your door tomorrow and said, "You're the chosen one." <laughs> You're going to save the world. Come with me. Mm-hmm. You also wouldn't believe that. And you've yeah. been hearing those stories your whole life. Yeah. You know, if uh, someone attacked a person on the street and the person on the street is like, shit, a vampire, everyone run. <laughs> Would you really believe it was a vampire? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the fades, like, 
you know, that's like a vampire opening their mouth and like vampire teeth. <laughs> mm. Right. But but still, if a very pale person on the streets of New York opened their mouth and had fangs, you'd think they were just weird. You wouldn't think, <laughs> you know what? oh, You're right. vampire. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, that person is really committed to being a goth. Yeah, I do think that's also a more region-specific attitude. <laughs> see that one? In New York is one thing. If I'm walking in Northern Virginia and I see that, I'm going to be like, oh. <laughs> There's someone from New York. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, no, New Yorker, God, go. <laughs> but, and I'm also kind of from that wondering about this episode because it's like Rand being confronted with like, Matt's fucked upness and like mm-hmm. kind of being like, oh shit, like there's this is this is something. Or yeah, like that kid is vomiting carpet. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um shagadelic baby. <laughs> oh behave. Or um like Nynaeve at the end, like because first of all, Nynaeve like channels more than anyone seems to have ever channeled in the history of the entire fucking world and <laughs> unravels her own braid, which we can talk about in a minute. <clears throat> but like after that and after all this stuff happens, like it just zooms in like to her face and the episode ends with like her kind of realization of like this is real. Like Did I do that? Yeah. <laughs> So, like, I mean, we don't really kind of have that with Perrin and Egwene. I think they kind of sit to the side this episode a wee bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Perrin gets a lot of setup. Egwene really gets a- almost nothing. Egwene um, gets to have a nice time. She gets to have. Her. She gets to dance. <laughs> I was so scared during that dance because the first episode has conditioned me to think that any like oh. fun, happy musical mm-hmm. dancing scene is going to end in disaster. Yeah. She's the one who gets to learn about Traveler Rumspringa. <laughs> Yeah, I have that exact note. <laughs> Gosh, um, I, I guess on the topic of the travelers and their dance and their song, um, I can have a gamer moment here, Ooh. where when uh, Egwene is talking with Aram about the song, this song that supposedly can like mend the world and have everyone live in like peace and happiness, that is almost the exact plot of this game called Wander Song, which actually goes hand in hand with the Way of the Leaf. That's a game in which you have to travel the world to find the pieces of this song that will literally like heal the world as all the gods in it are dying. And the main thing, mm-hmm. you don't fight, you don't have a sword or anything, you sing. So the whole game is like you use like this stick to like this like this radial like notes around you to sing. And that's how mm-hmm. the main way you interact with the world. You can't fight. All you can do is just talk and sing. It's like a very peaceful game like you play as a character who can fight, and which is, you know, obviously in like harsh uh, contrast to this very like pacifist, peaceful character you play most of the game. And it, it really struck me like the whole thing with the Tuathan and their song and the Way of the Leaf. I was like, huh, all right. So in conclusion, play Wander's Song is a very good game. <laughs> <laughs> it's also just very powerful to introduce a group of people who are not pacifist because they can't fight. They aren't. They aren't helpless villagers being slaughtered like you get in a lot of other fantasy series. They've made a choice. Mm-hmm. Mm. And how powerful it is for Perrin to hear that after his berserker rage moment. Yeah. Like the exact line from uh, Isla at Perrin is like, how much worse has your life been since you picked up that axe? Just like, mm-hmm. oh! And like Perrin just like stops walking and like 
has his mind blown or whatever. Like the contrast between like Matt and Rand's and Tom's sort of Tom team over there just like being pursued relentlessly, going fucking crazy themselves. And then there's the Aes Sedai and they've got the game to deal with. And it's just like, those are so like violent arcs. And then we cut over every so often to like Perrin and Egwene, who are just like learning about the way of the leaf. And like, that's, you know, it's, it's a breeze of fresh air with leaves on it. And I think this episode sets up a contrast, a direct one between the Tuatha'an and the Aes Sedai. Because both groups are bound by this very strict set of rules that they adhere to by personal choice, right? And their attitudes toward the world are so radically different. The Aes Sedai see themselves as guiding the world, as sort of acting in the world. The ones, I mean, the Aes Sedai that we meet in this episode are the Reds, who their like stated goal is to prevent misuse of the power. The Greens, who are the, like, go out and fight battle Aja, and we learn that one of them has, like, held back armies by herself. Um, and Moraine, who is called, like, a little spy because she's always out in the world. Gathering information. Events, gathering, yeah, gathering information. So unlike a leaf being carried along. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the Aes Sedai are trying to be the wind blowing. Yeah. They're yeah. Trying to do the biggest fart. Um, sorry. That was <laughs> Um, before, <laughs> before we move on completely from talking about Egwene and Perrin. Oh, I have loads more to say. Oh, okay, cool. But what were you going to say? I was just going to say that one of the, uh, I think, most interesting moments about Egwene doesn't have her in it, but it's when Lan asks Moraine, is Loghain as strong as Egwene? Mm-hmm. And Loghain, this person who needs two or three Aes Sedai at a time to shield him and isn't even breaking a sweat as he fights and exhausts them. And they think Egwene is stronger. Mm-hmm. Mm. Some real par levels stuff going on in this episode. <laughs> yeah, Lan, put your scouter on. <laughs> well, it's, and the fact that we haven't seen Egwene do anything. She maybe lit a fire once. Yeah, she like mm-hmm. struggled to light a fire. She held she held a pendant. She pondered an orb. And and the fact that Moraine is like, yeah, she might be more powerful than this guy who thinks he's the dragon is like, oh. It's like, even <laughs> if Egwene doesn't end up being revealed to be the dragon, she's still going to be like stupidly powerful. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's so telling about Moraine's like attitude that she never tells Egwene like, hey, you could be super powerful. Like, I can tell that you are this like massive battery of energy. She's mm-hmm. like, yeah, I think probably you could learn to channel the one power. Mm-hmm. No promises. Think about it. <laughs> like, eh, she'll figure it out. Come to the White Tower if you have time. <laughs> yeah, up to you. But yeah, so just to so to, to go back a bit uh, in the conversation to the Tuatha'an and their rules, um, whenever Aram is like telling Egwene about like the tinker, like Rumspringa, and he's like, you know, if the leap, it's incorporated into the way of the leaf that if you want to leave the way of the leaf that is also part of the way of the leaf so it's like it is just a very kind of beautiful you know all-encompassing philosophy and it's so it's kind of almost like the opposite of the three oaths which are so hyper specific you know we know from the context that the whole point of like the whole attitude of the Aes Sedai towards the three oaths is like how can we get around these to mm-hmm. do what we actually want to do? Yeah. You know, yeah. Because Leandrin I... even has that moment where she's like, hey, 
if you let him go, then we have to defend ourselves. Yeah. 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 You get the feeling like whenever like Alana is about to start like just tearing shit up with the one power in battle, like there's sort of like a moment that like they sort of hesitate and like Lan looks at her and she looks at Lan and it, I'm like I always feel like that moment is like them deciding whether their lives are in mortal danger yet and if they're allowed to start tearing shit up because after that she like kills like 30 people yeah with yeah the mm-hmm. arrows i guess technically not the one par or whatever like whereas mm-hmm. like you know the twelfth on they're so like it's so vague to be everything mm-hmm. about them and there's like the sense that like ila everything she says to perrin about the way of the leaf, like she, it's so ingrained in her, and like even Aram, who is very like skeptical of the way of the leaf, you kind of get the feeling that like he kind of wants to just run away with Egwene. He wants to leave. <laughs> you know, he even him, it's like still a part of him. When Perrin is talking to Isla and she is telling this story about her daughter, I was reminded of the first episode again and the like sending out of the candles thing that they do with the paper lanterns to guide spirits back to them and how so much of this movie takes place in the like in the shadow of the like pain of memory of these bad things that have happened and how different people respond to that how you cope with that like there's a brief moment in the first episode when matt's mother is sending out a lantern and she's so emotional that you can tell that there has been some great tragedy in her past. Mm. Like something happened. Maybe that's why she and her husband and their relationship are so messed up. Like some tragedy occurred and they couldn't cope with it. Mm. And then you get all of these other characters responding in different ways, learning to accept, learning to have hope in the future, or trying to like lock it down and control everything. That makes me think mm. of Tom's mm. whole story about his nephew. Yeah. Because based on his earlier interactions with Matt, I would never expect him to protect some dumb kids on the road. Yeah. You know, he was willing to help them out a little, but, you know, why should he get himself into this kind of trouble? And then he mentions while talking about his nephew that he was away. And that's yeah. when the Ayas said I found mm-hmm. the nephew. And you get this sense that he wanted to protect his nephew. That was his plan. And he feels like he failed. And so that's why we have him, you know, pledging to stay with these kids he barely knows on the road and try to protect Matt. Yeah. New new nephew. It's Tam Althor's line from the first episode. You try to do a little bit better next time. Mm -hmm. And he's saying that in the context of a new life, but it also applies within a life. Yeah. yeah. Tom's story is also the first time we actually get an explanation for why it is that channeling seems to make men go crazy. Mm-hmm. Right? Isn't it the first time someone has said that the Dark One poisoned the source? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And it's it's quite different from what Leandrin says in the first episode when she says men touching the source mm-hmm. fouls the source. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you even see that illustrated in the scenes uh a lot of the scene, like when Loghain is sort of storming the castle in Gelden, he's using the source and you can see the very tips of the source as it like leads. It's like the normal whitish silvery color, but very quickly it turns like this like more twisted, like black cobweb looking source. So mm. it's like you can like kind of see it be corrupted as he uses it and draws it out. Yeah. I thought yeah. that was a really nice touch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It looks like 
oil or ink. Yeah. The fact that it wasn't all black, it was just so cool to me. It's like there's a little bit that's just like, yeah, it's getting more evil. Yeah. I've actually been very disappointed with the way that the power has been uh, portrayed so far because it's so monochromatic. It's all white and now black. And I would have expected like reds and blues Mm. and greens and yellows. And we do get a little bit of that at the very end when Nynaeve does her big healing explosion. Mm -hmm. It's blue. It's not white like all the other channeling has been. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess there is a little bit of color when you're using too much of the one power. You see it in Nynaeve. You see it in Leandrin. Mm. It like it, it, it's like light that comes from underneath the skin, like you see it in Leandrin's cheeks, and you see it like all of it underneath Nynaeve when she like blasts out her power. So it's like there is color to it, and I I do agree, Tom. I do think that like if it were more colorful, it would definitely be like more impactful. But I guess that makes it so that when it does have color, it does make it that much more impactful because it's not something you're used to. Yeah, again, this is probably more of like a a book discussion, but I'm kind of wondering if as our channeling characters learn more about how the One Power works, that that will be introduced. Um, Maybe. Because that sort of felt like what happened in the book. They've just like visually they've gone so far in on the light versus darkness, white versus black. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Binary contrast. Yeah. I, I also wonder if whenever we see the dragon, the, the true dragon reborn, if it's one of the boys, if their one power is going to be going to have a different color. Because we know that, you know, again, the dark one poisoned the one power so that men use it in like a corrupted state. But if if you're the dragon, like is the dragon special? Does he did he get like a like a epic rarity loot box and gets like a little like color skin for his one power that's like makes it orange <laughs> or green or something. He got a th- free pass to use it without the um, corruption. <laughs> yeah, um, the, the Dragon Reborn comes with a $20 V-Bucks gift card. <laughs> that's why Maureen's looking for him so desperately. <laughs> Them. <laughs> one thing that I realized this episode watching more Aes Sedai channel, because we've only seen it from a couple of different people up until this point, Max brought up Avatar The Last Airbender earlier, and I feel like there's a lot of airbender influence in mm-hmm. the way the women move mm. and the way they move their hands and their whole bodies, and that it feels a bit like they're doing Tai Chi or slowed down martial arts. Mm-hmm. As, as sort of the acting for how they cast. And I also noticed a contrast between how the Aes Sedai channel, like whenever they're, you know, shielding Logan, they're putting him in the little like sidear condom thing, like they're doing this like <laughs> egg motion with their hands. But like whenever Logan is like breaking out of that, he just like stands up and like doesn't move and just like stares and like stuff happens and it's like the same in the intro scene he just like people throw spears at him and like he doesn't move and like it, the things just happen and you know like that um whenever tom is telling us about his nephew owen they're like and that he threw a rock without using his hands so i'm like is and i know we talked about this in the second episode we're like oh do you need your like hands to channel and it very much seems like the women or at least the Aes Sedai who have been trained in the use of the one power they all have these similar gestures that they do whereas like Logan just does seems to do whatever the fuck he wants um yeah at the end when they link up in order to gentle him 
all of them cross their hands. Mm-hmm. I really like, like that gesture. Like they're doing one of those circles where you all hold hands with each other crossed over like that. Yeah. <laughs> and all of them do it. It seems to be necessary for this linking action. Mm. At least for Aes I trained at the White Tower. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I liked that because it seemed like there is like a sort of like objective form you have to do. And going back to Sarah to Loghain using the one power, it did seem like he was using his hands, albeit in a very minimal way, in that it looks like whenever he's using the one power, his hands are kind of like, his, his fingers are like outstretched and kind of like tensed up a little bit. They're down at his sides, but it still seems like mm. he has to use his hands in some mm-hmm. form, very minimally, because, you know, he has so much of that power. But like, you do see him kind of like flex his fingers a little bit. I still think it has to do with the hands, but like, again, when you have that much power, you don't really need to like literally lift a finger to do it. Yeah, it's like a like he's clinging on or something. Mm-hmm. Whereas like yeah. the women are like directing. It's like they're shaping it, yeah. I have to stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> I would I also really like though that in addition to the the shaping, in addition to the the movements, there's also a sense of physical difficulty. Like it does feel like it takes effort and impacts their bodies to yeah. do these things. It's, you know, when Leandrin releases the shield in front of us the first time, she rocks backward mm-hmm. with, like, a grunt because of the, the effort involved in, like, letting go. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, like, the, and uh, it's, you see it, like, pass to Moraine in that scene, and she's like, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, it's half his power. There is a connection here, I think, to what we see of Lan and Nynaeve when they're both praying, because each of them has a very distinctive uh, hand gesture that they do, and it's different in both cases. But you know, it also makes me think of meditation, which we've talked about in prior episodes, and how like sometimes what you do with your body helps you to put your brain into the right frame of mind. Mm. That ritual gestures may not be strictly necessary, but they are helpful. Yeah, because like the, the the actual gestures that Lan makes when he's doing he's doing like a little prayer for the lost nation of Malkier or whatever, like the little gesture he does with his hands is the same gesture that the Aes Sedai are doing when they're shielding Loghain. Which I just mm-hmm. I know, I thought it was interesting, but I'm not like I'm not quite sure of a connection there. But I just like that repeated motif. Mm-hmm. I mean if it if it all goes back to so this is something I don't remember from the books, but like the old tongue presumably relates to a specific period in history and possibly a specific like empire or culture. Mm-hmm. And if it all goes back to a specific culture, then all of these gestures from the lost kingdom, from the Aes Sedai traditions, from these different places could also come from that same like root culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and Nynaeve makes the point that she doesn't remember what these things mean. Yeah. So the meaning can be lost. And of course, this also relates to Tom saying, like, there's nothing more dangerous than a man who remembers the past. And so we have this tension between these gestures that are remembered, but maybe divorced from their original meaning, and then the people who actually know some of this, mm-hmm. some of this history. Yeah. And, and can connect what you're doing to what it actually means, then how meaningful that is to Nynaeve when she actually learns what the last words her parents said to her were. God, that, like, God, that, that was a powerful moment. Conversation <laughs> and the fact that she says these words and then afterwards it's like, yeah, like, 
I don't say them anymore. No one wants to see like a fucking vulnerable wisdom, and it just it shows that what she's just said to Lan is like for her like incredibly like vulnerable, and just the fact that she came out to be in private with him and have this conversation mm-hmm. and just just chef's kiss. Oof. The yeah. show is mashing the Nineveh land dolls together. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, the look on her face when, after all of the greens come to collect their warders for sexy times, Lan is like, I'm going to go to bed too. And she's clearly wondering, like, is he going to go sleep with Moraine? <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, because she she even asks, um, uh, what's that, Steppen? And he's just like chuckling into his glass. He doesn't even answer her. He's like, are they going <laughs> to... She's more surprised by the two warders who mm. are very affectionate with each other mm. and then going off with Alana. Like, she assumed those two dudes were gay. Yeah. And now they're going off with this woman. She's discovered mm-hmm. the concept of throuples. Her mind's a little blown by this poly situation. Yeah. So maybe she's like, mm, Lan has two hands. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of, I, I th- found it very interesting that the green Aja get two warders. I imagine that's... You get two. You get two. I imagine that's because they're doing like more dangerous work. Just yeah. being the battle Aja. I think that gets explicitly explained in the books, but yeah, here they just yeah. sort of like you get to. I I did like the um the way the exposition for that is done, where we actually see Alana with two, but then she also mentions when Moraine says, "Oh, you could have been blue," and she's like, "Eh, one water wouldn't have been enough." Yeah, Gosh. yeah, yeah. I, I so love, we know yeah. that having more than one is exclusive to greens, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as opposed to just a thing that happens sometimes. And we see greens in this episode who don't have to. It's not universal. Just in general, everything about the Aes Sedai warder bond is like extremely... Just the fact that this episode... Because like, Nynaeve sits around the warder fire and like joins in the warder banter. And so Nynaeve's like, so like, what's the deal here? Like, Do you like, serve the Aes Sedai? And they kind mm-hmm. of explain to her that the warder bond is like the highest form of intimacy mm-hmm. that two people can experience with each other. And, you know, then we have the the like the little thruple established, but we've also previously established that like Lan and Maureen are in a purely platonic relationship. We have the vibes of like Karene and Stepan and like it's just yes, this is the highest form of intimacy, but it takes so many like different shapes. Mm-hmm. And, like, on a personal level, as someone who is asexual and who wants to violently reel against the notion that the highest form of intimacy has to be sexual or romantic in nature, like, like it was almost like seeing that little thruple confirmed to me that, like, there is a large spectrum of variety in how these warder relationships, mm-hmm. like, go about. And it was just, like, so refreshing to see that this episode. And it even, like, it, it feels like there's almost, like, a telepathic bond. It's, it's like, it's just so, like, because Stepan said it's, it's, like, greater than that of husband and wife, greater than that of, like, mother and child. Because, um, like, when or when um, Karini gets killed, like, Stepan feels it. He gets the new type flash, and he's like, oh, like, it's, it's, like, this very powerful moment, and... In like a similar vein, when Lan uh, goes to Moraine's tent and sees her after that, he's like, "I, I he's like, I shouldn't have had a drink. You you always get emotional when I drink." And mm. part of me was like, 
Well, that's a cute line. And then I'm like, I'm like, is their bond that deep that like they actually can feel like that kind of difference in each other? It's really good. I, I really love the relationship. Yeah. Nynaeve is actually the one who tells us that she's heard rumors warders feel what their eyes did I feel. Mm-hmm. She knows that when she cleans this wound, it's going to hurt him mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Yeah, and it means, like, other stuff that's been said in the episode, like, there was a line that Stepan had talking to Karini when he was like, oh, well, I've been getting, like, so much less sleep these days. And it's like, because of the water bond, we can infer that that means that she's been getting so much less sleep these days, and it's been affecting him. Yeah. They're sort of, they're almost hmm. two people who are one person. Yeah. Or three My, people uh... who are one person. <laughs> Infinite number three? of people. <laughs> uh I watched this episode with two people who fell very strongly on completely opposite sides of, oh, obviously there's something romantic or sexual between Lan and Moraine, and oh, obviously there's definitely not. Mm. Uh, And so watching it again, I was trying to kind of ignore all that and say, well, what do I think Mm -hmm. of this scene, and especially the physical acting in the scene between Lan and Moraine alone in her tent. And it's a bit of a cop-out, but I've almost come to the conclusion that there is very little point in trying to define the relationship between a warder and their Aes Sedai mm-hmm. because we cannot conceive of being that in tune with another right. person. And like, if I can be crass for a minute, like if you had that connection to another person and they're really horny one day, like maybe you get horny too and you guys hook up. Yeah. And it's like, it doesn't mean anything beyond that, beyond that you're like comfortable together and very in tune with each other. Mm. Um or maybe you have a romantic relationship, or maybe you're best buds, but like that trying to define the relationship between two people who are effectively telepathic and feel the same things is kind of pointless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah. more than we can understand. Mm-hmm. And at a certain level, once two people become that intimate with each other, what do the specifics of it matter? Yeah. Like every one of these relationships is going to be different. Mm hmm. This is slightly to the side of this, but like all the warders are very like they all have their own weapon. They don't like repeat weapons and like they're all very distinctive from each other. And like so are their relationships and everything about them. I thought it was extremely funny that there's a scene of Lan and Stepan doing the same like kata (laughs) using completely different weapons. Like the, the things you would do with an axe and the things you would do with a sword are not the same things. Hell, not an axe, double axes. Two axes, yeah. <laughs> not anymore. Yeah, like because I was watching that scene and it was like very much like, you know, this isn't their actual weapons training. This is just their little ritual they do like every morning and kind of like brought it back to ritual and tradition and custom and like the things that we do to, I don't know, don't talk to me until I've done my morning water kata. <laughs> and I do like how intimate all the warders are with each other and, and, and same with like the Aes Sedai like we see Alana trying to like you textually like they say this in the show like I just use our like previous like intimate relationship to like coax information out of you and like it's like Alana starts this conversation and Maureen like calls her out on what she's doing but Alana's like chill with it and again because they're Aes Sedai because they can't lie they have to be relatively honest with each other and like because they're all Aes Sedai like they know how it works and they know how their manner of speech can be interpreted so like between Aes Sedai themselves they almost like actually do have to tell the truth to each other but like 
they know how it works, they're like familiar with it, and they're all just like kind of chill with each other, even when mm -hmm. they are at odds. It's very interesting. Like when she gets called out, and you know, Maureen is like, Yeah, you're trying to coax the truth. I mean, she's like, Oh, I wasn't gonna do that for another two or three days. Like, <laughs> yeah. she says it as a joke, but like, yeah, because she has to tell the truth. That's what was her plan. And it's, it's, it's another sort of, I guess, kind of going back to the water relationship where it's just like, it, the ways that Aes Sedai interact with each other is like kind of on a different level of like regular people interacting with each other. It's like, you know, you can lie to your friends. I don't necessarily recommend it in most cases, but you know, it's different than how Aes Sedai do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like yeah. the, the lying to your friends where you're not going to lie to your friends, but because you are such close friends, you're going to be like, there's something that I'm not going to tell you. And your friend will, will accept that because yeah. you're close. Because it's like, you know, Karenia does the same thing with Leandrin at the end of the episode where she's like, approaches Leandrin and she's like, so you've approached everyone else, so you're not going to, what about me? Like, it's very like open subterfuge or, yeah. Yeah, well, that they all assume that all of them are plotting all the time mm -hmm. and that that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with their other conflicts. Everyone's plotting all the time and that is the soup in which they yeah. <laughs> swim. <laughs> but they are at least all pointed in the same direction. Yeah. They all have a sense that they're working together, even if they strongly disagree about which roads they should take. Yeah. Like at the end, whenever uh, Leandrin is drawing too much of the power, like the, the whole episode, like her and Karini have been at odds in the way that they want to deal with, the specific way they want to deal with Logan. But like, Whenever Kare dies, like Leandrin is ready to die for her sister. Well, and Karene doesn't think twice about shielding Moraine and Leandrin at her own expense. Yeah. Yeah, I um I also have in my notes Moraine has a friend. <laughs> it's nice. It's nice to see her. It's so nice. Yeah. Well, and Good she she and Lan, we've seen them interact with each other, but we know that that bond is peculiar. Mm. We've seen them interact with a bunch of people who for reasons good and bad, they hold themselves very separate from. Mm -hmm. This is the first time we've seen them interact with their peers. Yeah. And so getting to see them both be a little more relaxed and friendly and connect with other people <laughs> was fun. It's like peeking into the teacher's lounge or something. <laughs> but we also know that they are still holding back this very important thing, which is their whole quest to find the Dragon Reborn. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, because like... Koreni and Stepan have that conversation where they're like, God, like, Maureen and Lan, like, none of them speak. Like, imagine what their dinners are like. And then we, like, cut to them yeah, having, like, that line a lot. like, a highly emotional moment together. And it's like, these people don't know yeah. what, like, Maureen and Lan are like. Yeah. But also that there, there is almost, we don't know how exactly warders get paired with Aes Sedai, but there is a certain amount, uh, even going into it, of, like, finding complementary personalities Maureen and Lan are both very like stiff and cagey and silent, mm -hmm. and that works for them. That's a that's a good vibe <laughs> for the two of them. Yeah. But then Stepan and Karini are totally different, and yeah. Alana and her two are totally different. Yeah, because it's like like Stepan and Karini are almost trying to like outmother each other, and then like Alana and her two warders are almost trying to like they're they're so, they're so like flirtatious with each other. They're so like cheeky. You know, what was that line that Alana's warder was like, don't let her outward appearance fill you. And then he was like, oh, but not my outward appearance. Like, I'm really sexy. Haha. <laughs> yeah. When you go to the White Tower and become a warder, I said, oh, you have to take the Myers-Briggs test. 
and then they match you up with your Aes Sedai based on, you know, <laughs> Mori and Len are both INFJs. Uh, Alana or Karene and Stefan are both ESTPs. God. <laughs> Surely there's a more reliable test that they take. <laughs> Something on BuzzFeed or QuizMonkey. <laughs> they do they do a BuzzFeed quiz which avatar element you'd be. God, I have I've started seeing the BuzzFeed quizzes for what Ajo you are. Um Yay. I got green and I was really disappointed. Disgusting. <laughs> what do you think you are, Sarah? I wouldn't join the right tower. I would simply leave. <laughs> That's not an answer. <laughs> now before you start answering BuzzFeed quizzes, you do have to take the three oaths of the internet. Which are? Well, at least one of them is not to pick any quiz answer that is not true. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, lie, lie all the time is the other one. <laughs> Always be posting. Um, Never read the right. comments. Okay, uh, to, to, yeah. to, to drag us back into Aes Sedai interpersonal relationships, what do we think about that conversation that Leandrin starts having with Nynaeve? Because I think that's interesting. I loved that. Uh, mainly because... So Nynaeve has obviously set herself apart from everyone. She's not even really mm -hmm. in the camp. She's on a cliff. Yeah, like over, physically set herself apart. Physically overlooking the camp. Uh, and so Leandrin knows right away, okay, she doesn't like Moraine. Mm -hmm. I can <laughs> Maybe, use this. Yeah, exactly. And which I felt very sketched out by at first and was very relieved when Leandrin leaves. And Nynaeve is like, ugh, she's a snake. They're all snakes. Yeah. <laughs> Why did it have to be snakes? <laughs> <laughs> and I love how, like, because, like, Lan comes over and is almost like, hey, Mom, is, is is this lady bothering you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. But, but I always, I also really love how, like, Nynaeve seems like she's sort of shy and awkward and doesn't know what to do in the situation, is uncomfortable, but then, and she sort of clearly, like, is, but then whenever Leandrin comes over and is like, mm, hello, Nynaeve, like, she's like, okay here's what your deal is you're gonna tell me what you knew about marine like and just like brings her for answers sort of opportunistically almost mm -hmm. and it's like so far i quite like Nynaeve's contrast between like she is awkward and uncomfortable in situations but still like seizes control of them when she can because we sort of we mm -hmm. see that also in almost in like the battle situation where she is in battle and she's overwhelmed by anything. Yeah, she's so confused and freaked out. But then a guy comes at her and she just like shanks him like nine times with a knife, like extremely just like this guy's dying at my hands. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about that battle specifically? Yes. Yeah. So one, the the filmmaking influence felt very Saving Private Ryan. Oh, because of the explosions of Earth. The explosions of Earth, the specific way the camera is like moving through the mm. battle and the sense of chaos. Um, some scenes mm -hmm. are sped up. Yeah, I noticed that. In a way that looks bad, I think. Um, <sighs> yeah. Uh, but I, I thought on the whole it was really good. It's so subtly powerful that the king of uh, Gaelden came after the dragon with his whole army yeah. to try to get him mm. back. He could have let them take Loghain and gone back to the way things were, but this guy mm -hmm. is committed. He's a believer. Yeah, he literally died for him. It sets up kind of a scary contrast for the future because the Aes Sedai feel very insular and self-contained, and they don't have supporters and believers, adherents, in the same way mm -hmm. that Loghain mm -hmm. did. You know, if the, the Aes Sedai can do what they like, and for the most part, normal people are not going to interfere with that, but they're not going to help them. Yeah. Why would the Aes right, Sedai yeah. need help? 
versus Loghain, who says he's going to save the whole world. Because, like, Tommy said, like, the king of Gildan, like, took his army. But, like, the interpretation I had on that scene is that the king of Gildan had just joined Loghain's army as one of the many soldiers in it and was just one of the people. Mm. Sort of, I got the vibe of, like, Loghain had broken him out of being a king and he was just a person now. He was still wearing very kingly armor. Yeah, well, listen, if you don't kind of appear him in the same costume <laughs> as he was at the start of the episode, how is anyone going to recognize him? Like, no one would you know. know really? Like, I wouldn't have yeah. noticed. I mean, that's that's a legitimate <laughs> concern. Really cool armor, though. I love the, like, I, like it. I think they oh call it, like... All the Gildana design. I think they call it, like, mirror armor when you have the big, like, plate disc in the center of your chest and then, like, mm, mm. chainmail and whatnot. Mm, mm. Very cool. Yeah. That, uh... That read of him as becoming kind of a normal person actually fits really nicely with his first conversation with Loghain. Because in addition to how powerful it would be to have someone capture you and es- essentially have you at their mercy and then say, I'm not going to kill you. Hmm. I, in fact, I want you to join me. Uh, he also mm-hmm. at one point tells Loghain, like, the crown will never be yours. And he's like, I don't want the crown. What good is the crown of Gaelden to the dragon reborn? <laughs> what is a crown to a dragon reborn? Yeah. What is a dragon reborn to a mm. Nynaeve? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Nynaeve might be the dragon reborn. Yeah. That, that might be what the dragon reborn is to the Nynaeve. Yeah. Um, Both can be true. Yeah, Loghain is presented, or at least presents the role of the dragon as both evangelizing and universalizing. That, like, Everybody should follow the dragon, mm. even his enemies, no matter how much you hate mm-hmm. him, no matter how many times you've tried to kill him. The role of the dragon is to unite everyone. Mm. It feels almost like Loghain, Loghain more specifically than anyone else who might claim to be the dragon is like presenting it as an almost Christ-like figure of like there's room for like, you know, his exact line there's room for anyone at my side, even my enemies and like uniting the world, even though people want him dead. It's like, I don't really think that's exactly what the show is going for. But, you know, it, it really stands in contrast with what people thought the Dragon Reborn was, which is just this, you know, immensely destructive force. Yeah. Yeah. Because like Loghain's like, well, rip to those dragons, but I'm different. I'm going to do it different this yeah, time. Exactly. <laughs> I'm good now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of the other things, coming back to sort of what we were saying about Nynaeve, uh, her little interaction with Lan where she mentions what her parents said to her when she tucked her away made me wonder so much about her background. Yeah. yeah. How do they know the old tongue? Yeah, because like, that came up in like the first episode about like her background. I'm like, my God, what's Nynaeve's background? Yeah, well, and... Oof, tell me more. That her parents, even if they didn't know what it meant, spoke the old tongue. And they might have known what it meant. We don't really know. Mm-hmm. Mm. And we know she was found by the old wisdom and raised by her. But the the possible roots there and how that relates to like those mountain towns and everything. Interesting mysteries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I want to shout us out because we're at like one or 20 more or less. But I think we have some things still I mean, the that we biggest... haven't brought up. The biggest one is uh, a few of you mentioned wanting to talk about Nynaeve's braid in that last mm. scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this, I mean, it continues what I talked about last episode of Nynaeve, like, leaving her old life behind and, you know, going on this journey for herself. When when she unleashes the one power, it literally, like, breaks apart her braid like the 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 thing tying her to two rivers has like been destroyed by like 
this like new chapter in her life essentially mm. i just think it's a very nice bit of symbolism yeah and just like that complete explosion and unraveling and the fact that our expectations or you know certainly Maureen's expectations having been that the dragon reborn is one of these four youngsters and mm-hmm. i'm going to take them and i'm going to guide them and we see in this episode Maureen's like well all my plans are kind of falling apart <laughs> and then Nynaeve up. comes apart and just like plucks the last strand out of all Maureen's plans and they unravel completely Mm-hmm. And, you know, Logan's expectations of, I'm the Dragon Reborn, and at the end of the episode we see that Logan is completely convinced that Nynaeve is the Dragon Reborn, like mm-hmm. all his plans have been unraveled, and he himself is then unraveled by the Red, uh, by Leandrin. Yeah. Another illustration of, like, the sheer amount of power that Nynaeve has, if she unleashes huge magical explosion that, like you know, sent a brick through Logan's head. That would be one thing. But the fact that she healed everyone around her, and we know that, like, healing is, like, one of the hardest things you can do with the one power. Mm. And the fact that, like, Moraine had, like, the shaft of the axe in her gut, like, Lan's throat was completely slashed open, and, like, they're all fine, except for Kirene, who'd, like, already died beforehand. It's like, huh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so she can just do that now. Yeah. And yeah, it's like, even if she's not the dragon reborn like fucking whatever she might as well be with how powerful she yeah, is who, who cares like it doesn't matter at this point so she was something highly unprecedented mm-hmm. i think is sort of the vibe of what i'm getting from the unraveling of the brain like this was mm-hmm. not an expected part of the, the pattern taviran moment <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we still don't know what that is do we no we absolutely do not haven't heard the word in a while either it's someone tried to spell tavern and they just put an apostrophe in it because it was fantasy. Um, so that's yeah. probably what it means. Um, I mean, when Nynaeve does that that little prayer, that's just salted and peppered with apostrophes liberally. <laughs> yeah, d- glottal stops are the most effective way of making your fantasy language seem legitimate. And that's why Glasgow is the most fantasy world ever, because uh, of all the glottal stops. Um, Sorry about that. Uh, (laughs) I'm not arguing that with you. Don't apologize for being... Speaking about accents, I did... I think the final thing that I wanted to make sure we got in this episode was I just wanted to shout out, like, people of having different accents of English and specifically, like, sort of quote-unquote foreign um, Mm -hmm. accents. uh, Because, like, Logan appears and he is uh, Hispanic. I don't know where he's from, but he's got Spanish accent. And then we've got like the King of Gildan has a, um, he didn't really talk very much, but like it's sort of a non native speaking English accent. We've got Alana. Um, we've got, I think there's another of the Aes Sedai and certainly one of the warders. Uh, there's like Tom, who is, seems to be sort of Scandi of some kind. Um, and, and you also have like, uh, Yosha playing Rand, who, you know, has clearly been sort of very thoroughly like trained to have the same, a similar accent to Perrin and Matt, but like, you know, it's not like completely thorough. And it's like, I, I, I don't, I don't even think it's like, oh, like sometimes it's like British accent like slips. I just think it's like not that important for him to sound completely like a native English speaker for this, or at least I mm-hmm. don't think so either. Like I, other people might quibble with me about that, but I just wanted to sort of shout out the show of having that diversity of accents. I think in the same way that they've done the seemingly sort of race blind casting, uh, having a, having a certain uh, blindness to these accents 
kind of contributes to that sense that there are like it's not accurate, but it feels appropriate. Mm. Mm. Not accurate in that like people would have the same accents based on where they'd grown up and where they'd learned to speak whatever language they are ostensibly supposed to be speaking, but it it feels right to have that mm. variety. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And in a medieval-ish kind of world, there would be a lot of like different accents even within relatively small geographical areas. Like, mm-hmm. you know, two towns a couple of miles apart might have subtly different accents. Mm-hmm. Mm. As well, like, as Tom said at the, the last episode, like, there's not much that can tell a person where they're from other than accent and dress. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know, I think, I think mainly it's that I very much appreciate that the show is giving work to actors who don't have, like, perfect RP down. Yeah. As well as, like, act- like diversity in appearance. Diversity in voice is, like, an issue. What is RP? Uh, received pronunciation. It's like, you know, the BBC English that they spoke in, like, the mm-hmm. 70s, where they're like, hello, this is the BBC. <laughs> I'm the fucking queen. I'm definitely still alive. <laughs> She's definitely alive. I would love that um, when we get to meet, like, a community of IEL, they all have, like, an Australian accent or something. Okay. Just something completely out there. This is a... Complete like book spoiler. It never appeared in the books. It was just something that Robert Jordan said like one time in an interview in like two thousand and two. But in the books, all the Aiel are supposed to have like a Russian accent. Really? <laughs> Which yeah. is that's r- ridiculous because the other cultural influences <laughs> for their culture are nowhere near Russia. <laughs> it's so funny. But also the cultural influences that are very clearly integrated into the Aiel culture in the books are also not from anywhere near each other. So why not? Yeah, scramble it around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's have Russian accents. Great. It's like, um, t- to tie it into another fun game moment, the Xenoblade games uh, were all localized by Nintendo of Europe, <laughs> which is something you really don't see a lot. So they all they all speak with a variety of British accents. In the sequel, Xenoblade 2, they get even more like there's Welsh characters. But like the two sort of main important characters that are like, not human speak with perfect like normal American accents <laughs> and that's what I want to see too because it really stands in contrast when everyone talks like British and it's like hello I'm from North Carolina or whatever like, so far the, the most ex- exoticized sort of culture in the show has probably been the Aiel so like whenever they come in and they all sound like they're from Brooklyn they're all from Brooklyn <laughs> they all sound like Joey Wheeler a rant <laughs> <laughs> use use the dragon reborn you is. <laughs> hey, you with the red hair. Yeah. <laughs> All right, listeners, before we um go completely off the rails talking about uh funny accents and voices that uh potential uh, societies and cultures in the world of the wheel of time wheel world are going to have um we will say goodbye to you or to you um Sitting in the stalls in the cheap seats. Are the stalls the cheap seats these days? No, they're sitting in the gods, the cheap seats. We hope you've enjoyed our show and we will see you next week. Check out all the stuff in the description. It tells you more about how we're cool and smart and do other things on the internet. Thank you for listening. Bye. MTV's The Wheel World. <laughs> That's pretty good. Oh, God. That's pretty good. Use
guys are ready for some spoilers there. I'm from the Aiel Waste. <laughs> hey, I'm fighting here. <laughs> right, what have we got for never mind the spoilers? All right, I'm, I'm going to be petty. Do it. Uh -huh. I did not like, again, I'm going back to not liking the way they're depicting channeling. Like, I, I, I like it a lot, which makes the parts I don't like about it stand out that much more. Mm. Um, I did not like that they have Loghain just like shoot bolts of one power through uh, at, at the other Aes Sedai and through Karene. Um, like in the books, if I'm remembering correctly, it's very much about like using the one power to manipulate the environment that he could yeah. have like mm -hmm. he could have shot jagged rocks at them. Yeah, he's in a cave. He could tie them up with weaves of air. But actually just like forming inky black power into a spear and shooting it, it's wrong is what it is. Yeah, I can see how that's in service of it because, you know, like we've never seen the, the one power. It's always used to manipulate other things. So the fact that he's just using the one power itself is like, oh, wow, he's, you know, he's powerful in it. But I can also see why it's like frustrating because he could be, you know, Instead of throwing bricks, he'd be throwing like boulders or something huge like that. Because like they, they they do mention this episode like oh we've blocked his ears with weaves of air. So like it 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 has been mentioned that there is air is a weave and that means something. So like yeah like sort of knowing that theoretically you can't just attack with the one power you have to attack with an aspect of the one power and makes that mm. frustrating. Moraine does yeah. that in that first battle scene. She pulls stones out of the inn. She yeah. pulls fire out of the fire. It also, uh, I believe someone has mentioned it in the series so far, but it's a whole thing that women who channel can't usually see men's channeling. They can see each yeah. other's, they can't see men's. So my initial reaction to Karini protecting uh, Moraine and Leandrin was, wait, how does she even know something is coming at them? <laughs> Yeah. If he's just channeling yeah. the power, she can't see it. Yeah, because I mean, like, that's a good point. You know, the the Sidene is coming through the Sidar shield, so it's like, yeah, maybe she sees the distortion of the shield, and that's why right. she knows there's something. Mm -hmm. So it's like you can sort of explain it with some effort, but sort of the fact that it does take effort means that it's not. It's a bit sus. Is Sidene male magic and Sidar female magic? Uh, yes. Theoretically, actually, I think there has been uh, one of those little animated things about that this episode. Mm. Um, but like, likewise, I had the opposite reaction whenever uh, Logan was being really impressed with Nynaeve's channeling. I was like, how is he seeing all the power she's drawing? Like, he shouldn't be able to see that. Like, does So it works the other way around, too? Yeah. Theoretically. I guess maybe the implication was that she was physically creating all this light. But... Or he just sees everyone get healed. Yeah. Yeah, it it it's it's one of those things you have to explain. Um mm. and maybe they just shouldn't have included that line about not being able to see weaves using the other half of the power. Maybe they yeah. should that that maybe they just should have accepted that in the show they're gonna have to change that. I mean, this was yeah, a, like this was a thing. Hang that on, I, sorry, I'm still doing. I'm still doing like the like Sidene math in my head because <laughs> it's like you know the books do establish that while men can't like see women's weaves, they can still feel when women are channeling. So I guess that like Logan, even if he couldn't see the actual weaves, could still feel she was drawing an immense mm, amount of he, the fire. Key, yeah, and the light was just mm -hmm. necessary for like the visual 
um, you know, the sort of the poggers factor that the show had to get in there for us to look at any. Um, okay, I've done the math in my head and I'm ready to move on with my life. <laughs> I was just going to say that I think I've been waiting for the show to confront this question since the beginning, since they depicted the channeling visually. Because um, not only can like women not see men's weaves, nobody who everybody who can't channel hang on <laughs> it's like a jojo stand battle where right. all the passers-by i know you guys don't jojo but for the listeners it's like a jojo stand battle where the, the anime characters have the punch ghosts punching each other and there's like ghosts wearing thongs punching each other but all that the passers-by see is just like two fashionably dressed men doing poses and not doing anything <laughs> right people yeah. who can't channel can't see weaves at all mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it'd be a really funny joke for the showrunners for Amazon to do if, uh, like, most versions of the show didn't show the the weaves, <laughs> but, like, some accounts get to see it. Oh, my gosh. That's good. <laughs> Jeff Bezos chooses who can channel. I mean, it's a visual trick that I think it's used a lot in other sort of supernatural or fantastical shows that you have some cuts of a scene where you can see the magic or see the supernatural thing and then it cuts to a different character's perspective on the mm. scene where that's invisible because mm. like that's almost what happens in the books because like in the first book like Marin shows up at the two rivers and she's just like waving her stick around and there's fire coming out of it and all the kids are like ooh whoa 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 what's going on oh that's so cool she could do magic how'd she do that and like the, the magic she does in the first book is very sort of like Gandalf-esque in that stuff just kind of happens and you don't really know how and then the gang learn to channel and they're like oh this person has woven earth air fire and wind to create the <laughs> September spell um, and I think I said this in the wrong order shit um, but it's like the show doesn't do that it's just like every time someone channels you can see it no matter who's watching mm-hmm. yeah it's, it saved them a lot of CGI budget I know right yeah <laughs> Actually, the biggest thing I wanted to bring up in Nevermind the Spoilers is how pretty much none of this episode is a thing that happens in the books. Like, Logan is a completely New York. Um, was Logan in the books at all? Or was L- it Logan, just a different... Logan is very much in the books, but in the books, he we meet him at a point which he has already been gentled. We mm. don't see him before then. We just sort of hear about it. And I think it's mm-hmm. really effective that they've chosen to depict that and show it. Then we find out what a man who can channel acts like, gets on like. Mm. Yeah, though I think the the Tom Rand Matt part and the Perrin Egwene part, those happen in the books almost exactly the way they happen here. Yeah, almost like half the book sequence is just like Rand and Matt wandering around the countryside, going from like farmyard to farmyard in like excruciating detail. And the show has just been like, no, we're just going to have one farm. <laughs> yeah, I. It I is excruciating. Say, I. <laughs> I'm pleased that they've truncated that. I felt like in the books, Rand has a real, like, they're just kind of like sick and miserable and journeying seemingly forever, being sick and miserable, and it gets boring. Yeah. 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 Like a lot of that stuff on the road, if it was in the show, it would kind of like reveal that like Rand is the Dragon Reborn. Because like the, the a lot of the point of that arc is like Rand finding out some stuff about himself without anyone else being there. Matt mm-hmm. doesn't count because he's like fucked up and can't remember it. So like 
but like the show is tri- is very much being like, oh, which one of these five kids is the Dragon Reborn? We still don't know. No way to know. <laughs> the Dark One doesn't even know. Hmm. Yeah. Well, in the um, in the books, when Rand breaks down the door at Dana's bar, like that's the first time he channels, right? Yeah, I would say in the show, that seems like to be like hinted. It pro- it, he probably also did. Yeah, but they're not. Yeah. They're they're. Keeping that on the down low. Yeah. I feel like it's implied something about the sound design in that scene and some of the visuals they add. Yeah, because there's like a weird zoom in sort of yeah. effect thing. And I feel mm-hmm. like there was a, a, a sound effect in addition to the regular sounds that implied something was happening that we couldn't see as he was trying to break mm-hmm. down the door. Yeah, yeah. It honestly could be seen as a hint that Rand is the one because of how subtly they show that happening while showing Rand performing this clearly like superhuman feat. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That they're they're going to such lengths to set up all these other characters, putting some red herrings out there. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like they're going to like so much effort to like suggest that every other character is the Dragon Reborn that they've almost revealed that it's Rand by the lack of things that he's had to do. Yeah. It feels like the season's gonna end, the very last scene is gonna be Rand channeling, and it's gonna be like, and he was the Dragon Reborn all along. Although there is, uh, it does feel like it changes from episode to episode, because the last one, with the bit about, oh, you never, you almost never see red hair, that color, outside of the Aiel, Mm-hmm. implies that, oh, there's something we don't know about Rand. Like, it immediately brings up mm-hmm. questions about Rand's background. Mm-hmm. And then, because they have that big setup there, then the whole next episode is, or maybe it's these other people. I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. At the same time, though, I feel like y'all have, like, the benefit of knowing ahead of time. <laughs> and I feel like, and I know because of cultural osmosis, so I mm-hmm. feel like it was someone... Because I'm watching it with my girlfriend, Katie. I don't think she has any idea mm. who is it. Like, every episode, she's kind of, like, being like, oh, it could be this person. It's like, because I, I, I think, like, as of the last episode, she's like, oh, I think it might be Nynaeve. So I think someone who doesn't know anything, it, it, like, all the misdirection is working well. Good. Yeah. Cool. Because actually, I think back whenever episode four first aired, like, Nynaeve was, like, trending on, like, normal Twitter. Oh, weird. Or something. As she should be. <laughs> I mean, I'm not quite sure because I'm so immersed in Media Time Twitter that it could have just been more in, like, my side of Twitter. But, like, I think it might have been, like, normal, regular Twitter. And, like, there mm. was, like, articles being like, oh, is Nynaeve the Dragon Report in Amazon Jeff Bezos's personal show? <laughs> <laughs> gotta, gotta get these clicks. Gotta get the SEO going. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it just seems to me like Rand has had nothing to do because it's so different from the books because everyone else has so much, like, more going on mm-hmm. and th- that's only a symptom of the fact that the book eye of the world is told completely from one's perspective and no one else's perspective and here right. we actually get to see yeah, his main character disease what the fuck is going on with everyone else yeah mm-hmm. though if we were basing our theories on which character has the least overt uh evidence suggesting that they are the dragon reborn it would definitely be perrin yeah it would be perrin like he's really gotten the short end on this yeah mm-hmm. yeah other than that time the wolves lick him and then leave him alone. <laughs> yeah. Really... I don't remember the prophecy saying anything about being a friend of wolves. I, I would honestly say it's Egwene that's getting the least here because I guess Maureen having that whole moan with her feels like she, if 
the group was all like four women, it feels like she would have that conversation with all of them either individually or all together. Mm. It felt like she was more telling it to Egwene because she's just like, you're a woman, like you're going to be able to channel if you can channel. Mm. So I feel like outside of that, there really isn't a whole lot of for Egwene. Like we see the Dark One grab her in the dream, which is like, I guess a little bit more overt implication. But other than that, I can't really think of anything that's hinted that's like, it could be her. Yeah, just, I mean, that that comment about how she is just as powerful or maybe more Mm -hmm. than Loghain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Maybe there's a little dragon inside all of us. Whoa. Damn. (laughs) The dragon reborn was the friends we made along the way. (laughs) I mean, there's a, you know, there's a version of this kind of story where, like, every one of them could be the dragon. And it's a, Mm -hmm. like, it's which one of them takes the mantle first. Mm. Um Episodes ago, Max mentioned Divinity Original Sin 2, uh, or was it Divinity 2 Original, uh, whatever. Um, it's, it's, it's Divinity Original Sin 2. Okay. Because in that one, you have like six different candidates to become God. And yeah. any one of them could be it. Mm. And then it's, a, it's like gang. a race between them to try to actually do it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if like it will take the show will take the direction of like, and again, this is based on like real end game, real, real, like last few pages of the books kind of wheel of time stuff. If it will take the direction of like, even though such and such a person was the dragon reborn, it took all five of these people to do the sort of job of the dragon reborn. And it's like, Mm -hmm. it's far like, yes, though one of them is the dragon reborn kind of to make this do the, last battle whatever all the stuff Alana's talking about all five of them have all that own niche to play and if the show is really gonna like lean very heavily on that and it kind of feels like it is and I you know in the books there's so much uncertainty about like are the prophecies real is the person who seems to be the dragon reborn actually the dragon reborn you know there's a lot of angst for a long time and like trying to fulfill the prophecy to prove to themselves like that they are in fact the dragon yeah also from the sort of practicalities of turning these books into a tv show you i feel like from what i remember of the books it takes a lot longer to establish just why we're still following all of these people (laughs) and why they're important and why there's why what they're doing is significant whereas from the show if they want it to be an ensemble thing and not following one main character it really needs to be clear early why all these people still matter, even though they're split mm-hmm. up in different parts of the world. Yeah, because the show has like so much the benefit of like knowing what these characters' future arcs are going to be, and then looking at the book and be like, "All right, here, what's what's all the thing that like Robert Jordan Cleary hadn't thought about yet? Let's like put that in." <laughs> uh huh. Um, I have one final thing that I want to say in never mind the spoilers. Which is, I want to shout out that the little doll that the little girl has is called Birgitta. Birgitta! Birgitta. Tom also remembered Birgitta. I did not. And specifically that like she shows Birgitta to Matt and is like, hey Matt, my doll, Birgitta, will protect you. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> little I'm Easter egg for y'all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's a Chekhov's doll. It's Chekhov's Birgitta. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think that's it from me. Me too. Yeah. Same. 
that is perhaps not everything we could have said about this episode, but that is everything we are going to say for this week about this episode. And uh, we are all very excited to watch episode five. None of us have watched it yet. That's the absolute truth that I'm telling. And we will see you next week for the discussion about that. Thank you for tuning in to Nevermind the Trollocs, which you can find on Twitter at NVMTheTrollocs. If you want to hear some friends of ours uh, talk about that, you should go tune into the Everybody Hates Rand podcast. They are my sort of personally associated uh, wheelie time podcast out of all the many out there. They're all very good, but my personal favourite is Everybody Hates Rand, and you should go check them out. They're at EHR underscore podcast on Twitter. Go check them out. That's it. And you can send us emails about the things we got wrong or didn't mention it that you annoyed us about uh, to nevermindthetrollocks at gmail.com. And what you should also do is tell all your mates about how great this podcast and about how cool we are and sexy we are. Um, and you can do that really, really easily by just being like, oh, hey, mate, you should go to nevermindthetrollocks.com because that will take you directly to our RSS feed. Thank you and goodbye. And hey, someone else say never mind the trollocs. Never mind the trollocs. Thank you, Max. <laughs>No, I was going to say, like, that's a good way to doing it, where it's just like, you just have it on top of something that's already designed to sit on your face. Yeah. <laughs> I just heard sit on your face. That's all I heard. <laughs> We're talking about Shore <laughs> <laughs> But not in that Interpret context. Interpret that as you will. <laughs> <laughs>